0: Spirit of the living God, we ask that you will come now and you will take the word that you inspired and gave through prophets and apostles in the past and make it real to us in our hearing today. We ask that we might learn something from this story, the sixth miraculous sign of Jesus, that will challenge each of us and give us deeper insights into the mysteries of faith. We pray in the name of Jesus, the Lamb of God. Amen. Please be seated and take your Bibles if you would, please. And uh, I'm not sure who put the monitor here, but uh, I have strained my back so I can't bend down to, to move it, but uh, I don't know if we're gonna get feedback when we do so, guess not, that's good. Um, just don't wanna be tripping over it. Take your Bibles and turn to John chapter nine, the passage that we read together today. It was actually, I actually enjoyed reading the whole text today. And uh, hearing us all reading God's Word together, John chapter 9. As you're turning there, I want to just make a, just inform you of a couple of things. Uh, first of all, Bud and Diane Hooper have been worshiping with us for several years. Diane is the, um, the daughter of Ruth Helm, one of our members who went to be with the Lord a few years ago. And Bud uh, has been a, a leader. Uh, I believe the president of the Canadian Baptists of Ontario and Quebec—they've been worshiping here. Today is their last Sunday with us. I think your seat. Are right. Can you just wave your hand so we can see you? God bless you. We have enjoyed your fellowship with us. Thank you so much for your support over these last number of years, and uh, we're glad that. Um, that you have been a part of our church family even for just a short period of time. Uh, Kevin Riccafort, our youth pastor, is preaching this morning at the Living Hope Bible Church in Port Rowan, Ontario. Uh, some of you may not be aware of this, but Port Rowan, it used to be called Port Rowan Mennonite Brethren Church. They, they asked us if we would help them this summer. And so I think uh, uh, Chris and... Ken and Jamie have all been there to preach. This Sunday is Kevin's Sunday, so he's there. So uh, as I'm speaking, maybe you should be thinking of him as well and uh, praying for him as well as Pastor Ken, who's preaching at the Triple C uh, Bible Conference grounds today. Um, Last Sunday, just for your information, um, you may not know, know this, but last Sunday was a record here at West Highland in terms of the number of people who came out. As a matter of fact, we had more people here in one service last sun, Sunday than we did in two services back when we went back to two services back in March. So uh, the, the, the regathering is taking place. Praise the Lord for that. We're very, very glad that you're here. It was also a record last Sunday in terms of your giving. Uh, you gave last Sunday morning $55,000 toward our general fund and $41,000 toward our building fund, a total of $96,000 in one offering last Sunday morning. Uh, friends, that's never happened in the summer before, so praise, praise the Lord. And, and just, just relax, none of this goes to the pastor's secret Swiss account. Uh, though if you would like to contribute toward, no, sorry. We return this morning to John chapter 9, to the Gospel of John, that you might believe. We're looking at the miraculous signs of Jesus. There are seven of them in the Gospel of John. We looked at the first one, where Jesus turns the water into wine. The incredible power of Jesus that he can actually transform the substance of something that he's created and make it into something different. That truly is a trans-substantiation. Then the healing of the official son, man coming desperately to the Lord Jesus. His son is dying at home. Actually, the son is 22 kilometers away. And Jesus says to the man, Go home. Your son will live. The, the power of Jesus to be projected over great distances of time and space. Then the healing of the lame man who was at the pool man whose, whose limbs were lifeless. For 38 years he'd been this way. And Jesus touched him and life came into his lifeless limbs. Then the fifth miraculous sign, the, the feeding of the 5,000 where Jesus takes the bread and the loaves and multiplies them to feed this, mass, this vast multitude of people. And then him walking on the water, defying gravity as it were, because even the winds and the waves obey Jesus. He has absolute sovereignty over all of his creation. Now we come to the sixth sign, the healing of a blind man. And interestingly, the story actually begins not in John chapter 9, but in John chapter 8, where Jesus is in the temple grounds. And he's there because he with his disciples are celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. And at the end of the feast, the The custom was that they would light these massive lamps. And at the end of the feast, they would extinguish the lamps. And so the the temple grounds, as it were, was was lit up like Christmas. And with the extinguishing of the lights, Jesus stands up in the midst of the crowd and he proclaims this. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of the world of life. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, they know immediately where Jesus is going and and they they challenge him and they say, your testimony isn't valid because you're just testifying about yourself. And this begins a long conversation, a dialogue, an argument actually that goes back and forth. And it's all about the identity of Jesus. And after he makes this claim, I am the light of the world, they ask, kind of foolishly really, who are you? Well, he already, he'd already told them, I am the light of the world. But then he gives them more information. and They don't like the information that he gives. And he makes some astounding claims. He says, he says if a man believes in me, he will never see death. He says, if a man believes in my truth, the truth will set him free. And the, the, the Pharisees then say, who do you think you are? And it climaxes in chapter 8, verse 58. Look, just go back from chapter 9. Just to verse 58, Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Before Abraham was, I am. He couldn't have been clearer than that. Before Abraham even existed. Abraham existed 2,000 years before Jesus. Before Abraham was even existing, before Abraham was, I am. And the words he uses are borrowed from Exodus chapter 3, where God appears to Moses in the burning bush, and Moses says, who are you? What, what, what is this all about? And, and out of the bush comes a voice, I am who I am. He is Yahweh, the eternal God. Look at the reaction of the Jews in verse 59 because they understood him clearly at this they picked up stones to stone him why because he was claiming to be god but jesus hid himself slipping away from the temple grounds and then we pick up the story in chapter 9 verse 1 as he went along so he's just slipped out of the temple grounds now after making these incredible claims this astounding claim that he is the light of the world. And as he goes along, as he moves along, he sees a blind man there, a man blind from birth. Friends, chapter 9 of the Gospel of John is all about what happens when the light shines. Underscore that. It's all about what happens when the light shines. Now you'll notice immediately as Jesus stops and looks at the man the disciples have a question that they ask him because the disciples according to our first point have a theological problem that they 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 haven't worked out yet and so they ask rabbi who sinned this man or his parents verse 2 that he was born blind now with that question right there the disciples bring you and I into this question that we all we all have. We all have questions about the problem of evil and suffering in the world, don't we? I mean, if you don't, you're not human. We, we all have serious questions about evil and suffering in the world, and they're asking the question, who's responsible? Why has this man been born blind? Is, are his parents responsible, or is he responsible? As though somehow, in a prenatal sense, he could have committed sin. Now, the disciples are assuming a connection then between sin and suffering. And in one sense, they're, they're accurate, they're, they're right. Because it is true that there is a connection, a general kind of relationship between sin in the world and suffering in the world. Because human beings have fallen into sin, we the fall came upon all of creation. We go all the way back to the beginning when when Adam and Eve rebelled against the Creator and and God pronounced a series of curses upon the world. The world isn't the way it should be. The world doesn't function the way God intended it to be in the creation or at the creation. Something has has messed the world up. And so there is this connection between sin and suffering in a general sense, but, but... they're talking about an individual's personal suffering here, and it is not always, personal suffering is not always attributable to a person's personal sin. We need to understand that. Now, if you go out and live promiscuously, and in case you don't understand what that word means, because nobody even knows the word, what the word means today, because nothing is promiscuous today, right? Right? But if you go out and live loose sexually, well, you might end up with a sexually transmitted disease. You might get HIV, you might get syphilis, you might, whatever. Well, that's that's going to be personal, physical suffering for you because of your personal sin. If you, if, you, if you go out and get hammered one night and you're driving home and you run off the road and hit someone or, or, or you injure yourself, you're going to live with the personal consequences of your sin. You're going to personally suffer because of your personal sin. So there is a, re- a relationship, but not all illness and not all accidents and not all the bad things that cause suffering in the world are attributable to personal sin. And if you have any doubt about that, read the book of Job because he was a righteous man. He was godly in God's sight. Great suffering came to him. So there isn't just the simple cause and effect relationship. But unfortunately, this is the simplistic view that many, many people have. It's it's found everywhere in our world today. It's found in many of the great religions of the world. In Hinduism, we speak of karma. Karma. Karma is, you know, bad stuff's going to happen to you in this life because of bad stuff that you did in a former life. It's the old what goes around comes around kind of syndrome of think of thinking. And there are many churches that teach this kind of thing. There are people who live in fear in certain kinds of very, very strict legalistic kind of churches who are, who are living in fear that if they break the rules, you know, God hits you with a sledgehammer immediately. And then there's all kinds of healing theologies that are out there that, that you can be healed. It's all by faith. But, oh, the reason why you didn't get healed is, is it's, it's because you sinned. And so we see this. It's, it's out, out there. It's prevalent. What, what the disciples are asking here is a question that many people ask today. What does Jesus say? How does Jesus answer him? Look, it's, it's, it's amazing. Verse 3, neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus said this happened so the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. What does Jesus do here? Well, he, he says that the existence of suffering in the world, how you and I should approach it is essentially this. It's a call for you and I to work. It's a call for you and I to engage in alleviating the suffering of the world. A well-known, well-known Anglican bishop in England in the 1800s was Bishop West, Westcott, and he, he makes this comment on this, on this passage. He says, the real problem is not who is responsible, but how can this be turned to the glory of God? And this is exactly what Jesus does in our second point this morning. Jesus and his act of compassion, notice what he does. Verse 6, having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. He told him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So the man went and washed and came back seeing. This, this is Jesus engaging in this work. The night is coming when no one can work. The cross was on the horizon for the Lord Jesus, but he could work right now. He could do this right now. And so he takes dirt, and this is curious to us, it's strange. I mean, the picture is is sort of gross, actually. Just picture Jesus, you know, spitting onto the ground and taking the dirt and and spitting again and and making sure that it becomes like mud, and then applying it to the eyes of the blind man. We wonder, like, like, what's that all about? Why why would he do that? I mean, why not just speak a word, Lord, you know, bang, sir, you're healed, or... Why not just touch him? Why put mud on his eyes? And the critics have looked at this and and talking about primitive beliefs in the ancient world and Jesus was all a part of that superstitious belief that, you know, they believed that there was curative and magical powers in the saliva of a man, and Jesus is simply accommodating himself to the religious superstitions of the people of the ancient world. Calvin actually writes in his, his, com- his commentary, an interesting comment, which I, which I like. He, he says, this was designed to double the intensity of the blindness in order to magnify the cure. I like that, but I think there's another reason, and I'm going to come to this reason at the end of the message. So it's really not clear to us, it's somewhat obscure, but he does tell him to go to the pool of Siloam, and Siloam means sent, and that's, that's pretty clear. Because Jesus is the one who is sent from God, and now Jesus sends this man to a place called sent. This, this pool was a landmark in Jerusalem. It was the result of great engineering that had taken place during the reign of King Hezekiah when the Assyrian king Sennacherib had surrounded the city. Jerusalem was besieged, and so the Jews literally chiseled through the rock of the city to keep a water supply, and it became known eventually as the Pool of Siloam. Go, go Jesus says, wash in the place called Scent and he's told to do this by the one who is sent from God, and he washes, he obeys, and he sees. Now, at this point, interestingly, Jesus kind of disappears out of the story. He, he's there in the, back, the background, but you don't see him, and he's not a part of the rest of the story until the end of the story. He's no longer, as it were, center stage in the story, but the identity of Jesus is center stage because the issue, the debate that is going to happen between the blind man and the Pharisees is all about the identity of Jesus. And so the interrogation begins. Now we could call it an investigation, but I'd like to call it an interrogation because as you get into the investigation that the Pharisees are doing, it really seems more like an interrogation and they put this man under great pressure. So beginning at verse 8, a series of interviews begin to happen, and the first is that we're introduced to the neighbors. These are individuals who would have lived very close to where the blind man lived, like next-door neighbors. And John makes it very clear that the neighbors uh, and those who had formerly seen him begging, verse 8, they ask, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? And some claim that he was, others said, no, he only looks like him. I mean, they, they were shocked. This man who, who they knew as a neighbor and they'd seen sitting at the temple uh, on a daily basis begging for money, uh, they knew who he was, but they, they, they were shocked that the man could actually see. And so they were in doubt that this actually happened. Maybe this is some other man. But the blind man testifies, and, and notice what he says at the last line of verse 9. He says, I am the man. You, you, you can almost hear the emotion in his voice. He really wants them to recognize him. And when they, they ask, how were your eyes opened? Notice what he says in verse 11. He replied, the man they call Jesus. That's all he knows about Jesus. He just knows his name. The man they call Jesus made mud and, 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 and he put it on my eyes. And so they bring him now to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders. And it seems that the concern is not so much the miracle that's happened or the identity of the man, But the concern is, it's what's happened, has happened on the Sabbath day. Verse 13, they brought to the Pharisees the man who'd been blind. Now, the day in which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath, the day of rest. So, the first interrogation now begins. The blind man is examined, and the Sabbath is a big issue to the Jewish religious leaders. And in their minds, they probably perceived that Jesus had actually broken the Sabbath in three different ways. First of all, he healed the man. Shouldn't do that. You see, healing was only permissible if a man's life was in danger, endangered. And clearly, that's not the case here. So he he broke the Sabbath in one point. Second, he broke the Sabbath by making mud. In the mind of the Jewish leaders, they would have attributed this to something like taking dough and kneading the dough. He would do the same thing with the dirt, just like you work the dough. He would do the same thing with the dirt, and that was prohibited on the Sabbath day. And then the final thing is actually putting the mud onto the man's eyes, anointing his eyes. So, so in their minds, this is a pretty serious violation of the law of Moses. And so the interviews or the interrogation begins, and there are three stages to it. The first one is the blind man init- initially, and it's clear that they want to discredit the miracle, and in so doing, discredit the miracle worker. And in verse 16, it's pretty clear that they have already prejudged the case. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. He does not keep the Sabbath. So they asked him who it was who did this to him and what happened. And he says, I put mud on my eyes, verse 15. I washed and now I see. No, 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 no. This, this can't be a real, a real miracle because the man who did this is not from God because the man who did this is clearly a Sabbath breaker. Now, they've, they've, got, they've got a miracle right in front of their face, and their, their focus isn't on the miracle. It's on the technicalities of when the miracle happened. You see what's going on here. Calvin, again, makes an interesting comment, and he says that Jesus Christ did this miracle on the Sabbath on purpose to gain publicity for the miracle. If it had happened any other day, they might have just disregarded it. But it's happened on the Sabbath, and that brings it out. That's why the neighbors are upset. That's why the Pharisees are upset. But notice what John tells us, because it also says in verse 16, Others asked, how can a sinner do such miraculous signs? So they were divided. Some of them were saying, he's broken the Sabbath. He can't be from God. Others are saying, well, well, how could a sinful man do such a, a miraculous deed? He must be from God. So they're in a dilemma. The division has created a dilemma. They cannot unify themselves and present some kind of a united front against Jesus. And this division of opinion prompts them then to ask another question in verse 17. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. Now they're trying to force the man to take sides. And notice how the man responds. The man replies, he's a prophet. Now before he only knew that his name was Jesus. He's had some time to think, and no doubt the interrogation of the Pharisees upon him has stirred his intellectual juices a little bit, and he's coming to some pretty solid conclusions. He is a prophet, he says. It's amazing what happens here. I mean, this was the highest category that he could place this man in, at least in his own thinking. But I want you to see that something is happening to the blind. Well, he's not a blind man now. He's a seeing man. Something is happening to him. It's not just the physical opening of his eyes. There's something spiritual in terms of opening eyes that is taking place here. He's moving in the right direction in terms of his conclusions about Jesus. Let me just add, so many move in the wrong direction in terms of their conclusions about Jesus, and the Pharisees are an example of that. What about you? What about you? What direction are you headed in? So now the second interrogation begins, beginning at verse 18. They finish with the blind man. Now they call in his parents. Now, they, they want to they find out, was this guy really born blind in the first place? They're, they're, they're trying to discredit the miracle, and they, they want to cast some kind of a doubt on whether or not the man was born blind. So, the Jews did notice, and the reason, verse 18, the Jews still did not believe they'd been blind, and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he... Can see. And what do the parents do? Well, they confirm two important things. Notice what they say. Verse 21. Sorry, verse 20. We know he is our son, and we know that he was born blind. But how he can see now, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. So they, conform, they confirm that he was born blind, they identify him as their son which implies what? A real miracle has taken place. But verse 21 through 23, it becomes clear that they really don't want to carry this conversation on with the religious leaders anymore because they don't want to get into how his eyes got opened. He says, we don't know. Ask him, verse 21. He is of age. He will speak for himself. Verse 22 explains why they were talking this way. They said they said this because they were afraid of the Jews for already the Jewish leaders had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents, and said, he is of age, ask him. See, to be put out of the synagogue in those days would have been to to have been ostracized by society itself. You would become a social pariah. You would be left on the edges of life itself. You you might not be able to buy or sell in the marketplace. You, You wouldn't, all of your friends from the past, no one would want to keep their friendship with you. Neighbors would shut their doors to you. And this is what they were afraid would happen. So when they're finished with, when they're finished with the parents, they now, go, they now interrogate the blind man for a second time. A third interrogation takes place. Beginning at verse 24, a second time they summon the man who'd been blind. Give glory to God, they said. We know this man is a sinner. Now, they cannot admit that a bona fide miracle has taken place. They do not want to acknowledge the validity of what's happened. They don't want to acknowledge that Jesus did it. They don't want to acknowledge that it is from the power of God. For them, this is unthinkable. Now clearly they have somehow reached an agreement at this point that Jesus is a sinner. And so they try to force the blind man into a solemn oath. When they say these words, give glory to God, they said, We know this man is a sinner. They're saying they're saying to him, We want you to speak the truth. We're placing you under a solemn oath. You are to tell the truth. They're trying to put words in his mouth. They're exhorting him to tell the truth as they perceive the truth to be. When they say, give glory glory to God, they're not saying, praise God for what he's done for you. Rather, they're saying, it's time that before God you own up and admit the truth, agree that he's not a prophet, agree with us that he is a sinner. Now, it's important to note here that the blind man at this point is beginning to get his his legs under him, so to speak, and uh, he will have none of this and so he takes a stand at this point, and the stand that he takes is on the facts that he knows. And so we begin to see here this exchange now. It's moving from an interrogation into the blind man having a heated exchange with these men. And he says in verse 25, Whether he's a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know. These are beautiful words. One thing I know. What is it I know? I was blind. now I see. And in that short sentence, this man spoke words that have become historical words because countless people down through the ages have said the same words, including John Newton, the slave trader, who said, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. The interrogation ends, the blind man goes on the offensive, the Pharisees attempt to interrogate him again, but no, the blind man continues, they try to ask more questions of him, look at verse 26, then they asked him, what did he do to you, how did he open your eyes, and he's irritated, the blind man is irritated, rightly so, at this point in time, And, and notice how he responds, he answered, I've told you already and you did not listen, why do you want to hear it again? And here's the cutting edge. Do you want to become his disciples too? And boy, do they react to that. You see, the blind man realized that there's, the, the Pharisees professed impartiality in investigating it was just a show. The blind man is provoked because he has already answered them. And he says, do you want to become his disciples too? Implying what? that he's thinking of becoming a disciple of Jesus, and the Pharisees are incensed. And so we get this insulting response in verses 28 and 29. Then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciples. We are disciples of Moses. You can just hear the pride there. We know that God spoke to Moses, and they were right. Because the Bible tells us that God spoke to Moses face to face. There was no one like the prophet Moses. But they're upholding Moses' law. They are clearly disciples of Moses. They think there's some kind of a contradiction between Moses and Jesus. Like, like Jesus and Moses are not compatible with each other. And they're missing the point because Moses spoke of Jesus. Moses prophesied about the coming of of Jesus. Moses wrote in Genesis, in Exodus and in the other books of the law over and over again giving foreshadowings of the coming of the Messiah. Moses and Jesus are not incompatible at all, but they say we're disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses but as for this fellow we don't even know where he comes from. You see the bottom line for them was an issue of Authority. If Jesus is Messiah, then he has authority over Moses. And they were committed to Moses. And blind man now gives a very, very strong defense beginning at verse 30. And you can tell that he's somewhat astonished at these leaders. These are supposed to be learned men. Men who knew, knew the Old Testament writings in and out, and he can't really figure, he can't really understand why men so learned can't figure this out. And what the blind man finds remarkable is not his own personal belief, but the unbelief of the Pharisees. And so in verse 30, he says, the man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from? Yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man. How many times in the Psalms does it talk about the Lord hearing the cries of the righteous? You see, this man had an understanding. He he knew his Bible, as it were. He listens to the godly man who does his will. Verse 32, nobody has ever heard of the opening of the eyes of a man born blind. The man is saying, this hasn't happened before. It hasn't happened before. Verse 33, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this blind man's simple mind, and I don't use the word simple here in a derogatory fashion, but to his simple mind, he understood God doesn't give this power to sinful men. He concluded, my blindness is gone. God did this. The conclusion must be Jesus is from God. And in a vindictive way, verse 34, they expel him. To this they replied, you were steeped in birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Not just physically throwing him out of their presence, but excommunicating him from life in the synagogue itself. But in their anger, notice what they say. You were steeped in sin at birth. Meaning what? They're affirming that he was born blind. And the fact that they throw him out and they're talking to him, they're also affirming that the miracle has actually happened. Now we come to our fifth point today before we go into some application. And that is the blind man now has an encounter with Jesus. Beginning at verse 35, Jesus comes center stage in the story again. It's no longer just people debating who Jesus is. It's now Jesus' center stage to say who he is. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they thrown him out, and when he found him. I just want to stop there. This line, when he found him, friends, underscore that in your Bible, because these words underscore, they emphasize powerfully something about the eternal God, which we see all the way in Genesis right through to the last book of the Bible, and that is that God seeks us out God always takes the initiative in finding us from a human vantage point we say I found Jesus from a human vantage point we say I was seeking God but in the end ultimately it gets all turned around and we begin to see that it is God in his grace who has sought us out from the beginning when Adam and Eve had sinned he went to them he sought them out they were hiding from him and here Jesus again taking the initiative the seeking Lord. Jesus had withdrawn himself, as it were, from the man's life for a period of time, but he had not lost interest in this man at all. He says to him, do you believe in the Son of Man? Verse 35. Now remember remember this. This man had never seen Jesus up to this point in time. He'd heard him, and he'd felt his touch, but he had never seen him. Now he sees him, but he doesn't know who he is. And Jesus presents himself to him as the object of faith. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Verse 36. Who is he, sir? Who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe in him. Now when Jesus says, do you believe in the Son of Man? He's essentially asking, do you place your trust in the Son of Man. This isn't just an intellectual accept, accept, acceptance of who Jesus is. No. Do, do you place your trust in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir, that I might believe in him? Now, it's interesting. All through the Gospel of John, Jesus presents himself as the Son of God. Now Jesus uses the term Son of Man. Now, I would think that in accordance with where john is going in his writing that because when you get to the end of the book he says that these are the miraculous signs that jesus did and 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 these are written these signs are recorded so that you might believe that jesus is the christ the son of god i would think that the question here should be do you believe in the son of god that's not the question the question is do you believe in the son of man and i think there's a reason for this because this man would have understood as a jew who was familiar with old testament writing he would have understood Who the Son of Man was, in concept at least, because this takes us back to Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has a vision of the Son of Man who is given authority and glory and sovereign power and all nations and peoples and languages worship Him and His kingdom will be forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed. In other words, Daniel chapter 7, the term Son of Man is all about Messiah. Do you believe in the Son of Man? i.e., do you believe in the Messiah? Who is he, sir, that I might believe in him? And Jesus said, verse 37, you've now seen him. In fact, he's the one speaking with you. Oh, look at this. Then the man said, Lord, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. It literally means that he fell prostrate before Jesus. And he worshipped him. Then Jesus makes a pronouncement, beginning at verse 39. He says, For judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? (laughs) In one sense, the light came on for them there because, yes, they were blind. Jesus was speaking specifically to them. For judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see. And those who see will become blind. Now, Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world. He makes it very, very clear in John chapter 3, but that the world through him might be saved. But friends, when those who believe in him are saved, then conversely, the opposite is true. Those who do not believe in him will be condemned. And in that sense, Jesus has come into the world to judge. So here is a blind man who cannot see but he receives salvation and he sees. But here's a, here are a group of men who think they can see. They got their religious act together. They really think that they've got, a, they've got a little edge on the truth that nobody else does. But they, in reality, are blind. And judgment comes to them. Do you realize that what Jesus says here, go down now to verse 41, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin, but now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Do you realize that here we have a summary of the entire incident with the blind man and these Jewish religious leaders? Jesus coming into the world results in both salvation and judgment. When, when the light shines, if it is welcomed, people are delivered out of the darkness and into the light. But if when the light shines, the light is refused, then people turn away into deeper darkness. So we come now to the three questions I wanna conclude with today. Three questions that are important to us. Three questions. What does the sixth sign reveal about Jesus? Is the first question. The second question is, what does the sixth sign reveal about faith? And the third question is, how does the sixth sign relate to you, relate to you? Let's take just a couple of minutes. We're almost done. What does the sixth sign reveal about Jesus? I want to go back to the mud because that's the little perplexing thing in the, in the story. Why in the world would Jesus take mud, you know, take, take dirt and turn it into mud with his saliva? I mean, <laughs> talk about unappealing why. The church fathers had a slant on this. The church fathers who were the church leaders who came after the apostles, they believed that that Jesus took dirt and made it into mud with his saliva because this was a a look back on Genesis chapter 2 verse 7. You know what Genesis 2 7 says? And the Lord God formed man out of the dust, the dirt of the earth. And he breathed into him the breath of life. And man became a living soul. Jesus takes mud. He takes dirt. In a sense, he breathes into it with his saliva. And he puts it on the man's eyes. And the man goes and washes. And he can see. He gives Life to sightless eyes. He breathed, as it were, the breath of life into this man's eyes, meaning Jesus is the life giver, meaning Jesus is. He is the same God who breathed life into the first man when he formed him out of the dust of the earth. Secondly, in terms of what this passage reveals about Jesus, there's this big issue of the Sabbath here, like, why is Jesus breaking the Sabbath? Why is Jesus doing this? He can't be from God. He's breaking the Sabbath. Why is Jesus doing this? Because Jesus is showing that he is Lord of the Sabbath. Who made the, sab- the Sabbath day? God created the world in six days. On the seventh day, he rested. On the seventh day, he made the Sabbath day. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Who is Jesus? Jesus. He is the same God who gave us the Sabbath day. And very clearly, this is telling us that Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. The one who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So friends, these are the truths that we are confronted with here in in this passage. Each one of the miraculous signs points to something about the Lord Jesus Christ. What are you you going to do with this? Well, let's look at the next question. What does the sixth sign reveal about faith? I said at the beginning of the message, when the light shines, (laughs) things begin to happen. And chapter 9 is all about what happens when the light shines. And what do we see happening here as Jesus, the light of the world, begins to shine his light on a blind man? Well, yeah, physical healing happens. But notice what happens. The, the faith of the man starts to change. It moves from verse 11, the man they call Jesus, that's all he knows, to verse 17, he's a prophet. You see, it starts to move. Faith, faith develops. Faith, uh, as it were, enters a number of different stages. Faith, faith has different levels so to speak faith has different degrees of awareness and the blind man is an example of this and we can trace the real opening of his eyes to the identity of Jesus the man they call Jesus he's a prophet he's a messenger he has the words of God to verse 30 where he says he opened my eyes he's actually a healer but not just that. Verse 33, he says, Jesus is from God. And then in verse 38, Lord, who is he so that I might believe in him? The one, me, the one speaking to you, I am he. I am the Son of Man. Lord, I believe. And he bows down and he worships Jesus. You see, faith is a journey. Faith is a journey towards Jesus up to the point of full commitment to him as Lord. That's what faith really is. Faith isn't just believing he's a prophet or believing he came from God or believing that he's the Messiah or believing that he was sent or believing that he was a miracle worker or believing that he's a healer or believing that he gives to you all the good things of life. That's not just what biblical faith is. Faith is when you come to the point of full commitment and you bow your knee to Jesus and you worship him and you say you are Lord. Lord. And when that happens, the light really, really comes on. Faith is a journey towards Jesus up to the point of a commitment to Him as a Lord. And when that happens, true sight is born. When the light shines, faith is born. I just want to add this as a word of personal testimony that it was 50 years ago, probably this week, when I came to faith in Jesus Christ. And for a whole summer, I wrestled with Jesus. I argued with my uncle. I argued with my aunt. They continued to tell me about Jesus. I continued to read the Bible. I went to church with them. I argued with them over and over and over again. But little by little, my thinking changed. And one night, I looked up to heaven in my bed, and I was lying there, and I started to pray for my friends. And in the middle of my prayer, I stopped and I said, what are you doing? I was praying for my friends because I knew how messed up my life was and their lives were, and something was happening in my heart, and I'm praying for them, and it dawned on me immediately, I believe. And my life was completely transformed. Conversely, friends, when the light shines, something else happens. When the light shines, sometimes unbelief becomes entrenched And we see this in the Pharisees. Because light not only enlightens our life and brings joy to our life, but light can expose the darkness. And the Scripture tells us that men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And what did these men do? all through the dialogue that happens, you know what they're doing? They're just looking for evidence. They're looking for proof. They're grasping at this straw and grasping at that straw. They want to have this intellectual argument against Jesus and this scientific argument against Jesus. They want to have all of their evidence all lined up so that they will then feel justified to remain in their unbelief. And people do this all the time. And when you choose the darkness as opposed to the light, this is what your life becomes. It becomes a never-ending search for more and more concocted evidence so that you can stay in your unbelief and in your miserable darkness. These two things happen when the light shines. Faith is birth or unbelief is entrenched. So, the final question to you all today: what does the sixth, how does the sixth sign relate relate to you? Who are you in this passage? Are you the blind man or are you the, far, the, far, the, far, the Pharisees? The coming of light has this twofold effect: It brings salvation to the blind. It brings the shadow of judgment to those who refuse to embrace the light. Friends, I hope you see this, that with every single message this summer where we have talked about the miracles of Jesus, every single one of these miraculous signs of Jesus is an invitation to you to believe. And, and this story of the blind man is an, an invitation to you where Jesus is saying to you, I am the light of the world, will you come to me? Because if you will come to me, you will never walk in the dark. You will have the light of life. But to do this, you must admit your dark your darkness, you must admit your blindness, and when you do, He will give you light. But to reject the light will be to spend your whole life like the Pharisees, looking for evidence to keep you in the dark. And friends, the longer you linger in a state of indecision about Jesus, the longer you allow the darkness to gain the stronger grip in your life. But Jesus invites you today, right now, this morning, right now as I'm speaking to you, he invites you to open your heart to him and to receive his light. I don't know where you are on your journey toward Jesus. This journey of faith. You you might you might have just been invited here today and you're just you're just at the stage where there's a man called Jesus. I don't know who he is, but he's called Jesus. Some of you may may see something even more in Jesus. You might say, "Well, yeah, he I mean he's a great prophet. He's one of the great great religious teachers of the world." Sure, I mean there's no teaching like Jesus. Some of you might be to the point where you'll even go so far as to say, "Yeah, I I, I think he's from God." But you need to come to the point where you say, no, He's Lord. He's Lord. He is the Son of Man. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of the living God, and I must give myself to Him. May God help you to make that choice. Let's stand, please. Lord Jesus, I, I ask that Your Spirit will work in every heart and that as we sing this concluding song of worship this morning, that individuals might do business with you and, and place their faith and trust in you. I'm going to ask you to keep your heads bowed, please, and to keep your eyes closed with no one looking around. And if, if you are somewhere on this journey of faith toward the Lord Jesus, maybe you're not at the point where you where you're prepared to bow your knee to him, but you're somewhere along that journey and you're you're open and and you might be even able to say, I want to get to that point like the blind man where I bow my life and my heart to Jesus Christ. If any of you are on that journey today, would you, with no one looking around, just me looking at you, would you lift your hand just long enough that I can see it so that I can pray for you today? Would you lift your hand? Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Anyone else? In the, bal- the, bal- the balcony area, anyone up, up there? Thank you. Thank you. Lord, you see the hands that are stretched out to you today. I pray that as they stretch out those hands to you in faith, that you will come to them with your light and give them your life. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to remain here up at the front. I'm going to ask the pastors who are present if you would come and join me at the front at this time. And any of you who would like to come and talk to us about spiritual matters, perhaps you're on that journey and you would, you're saying today, I'd, I'd, I'd like to come to the end of that journey and give my life to Christ. We'll be here up at the front. It would be a real joy for us to counsel with you and to pray with you uh, should you so choose to do. Next Sunday morning, uh, John chapter 11, the great story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the grave. And uh, Pastor Lee will be bringing that message tied in with our camp day. We trust that you can be here and join us for that. Continue to pray for this week as we go, go into final, the final week of camp, that there will be more and more people who, who put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God who dwells in unapproachable light, be glory and honor, dominion and power forever and ever. Amen.